0: Time of year is that people will miss Christmas. And I don't mean miss opening the presents or miss gathering with family members or, or, uh, miss the good meals. I mean, miss the Christ in Christmas. It's his birthday and we should celebrate his birthday. And so I'm going to challenge you today, wherever you are in your, in your relationship with Christ, I'm going to challenge you to take a step towards him. If you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, take a step towards the light of the world. If you're a, if you're a Christian who has wandered away from the faith and maybe you're a long ways away from home, I want you to step back towards this, the light. Um, if you're a new believer, then, then you're responsible for your own growth spiritually. You need to step towards the light and get involved in some things. If you're a if you're an unbeliever, then we're going to challenge you to step towards the light, not miss the light this Christmas. And it's going to look different for every one of you, depending on where you are. If you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, then then you um, you maybe need to get involved in a in an in depth um, Bible study. We're going to do that in January when we do experiencing God or we do the love and respect for for marriages. Even if if you're not married, you got to get involved in that love and respect. Um, study. There's a lot of stuff going on. You can do if you're a, if you're away from Christ, and you're coming back. You need to get involved with a group so that you can have accountability and fellowship. If you're a new believer, then then there's lots of stuff you can do. We even have little booklets we can give you talking about your next step in Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, what we want to challenge you to do is keep coming and have your questions answered. And if we don't answer your questions, write them down and we'll be happy to answer those questions. Um, now today we're going to, we're going to read about the light of the world. We're going to read about Matthew's, um, description of, of how Jesus came into the world. And, and before, before we get into that, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about the, the Christmas character that, that most of us relate to year in and year out. And it's not Mary. Not a teenage girl impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God to give to, to raise the Son of God. None of us can relate to that. It's not Joseph, the dude who's engaged to the woman all of that stuff. We can't relate to Joseph. We really can't relate to the, to the wise men or the, the shepherds. The character that I think most of us identify with Christmas after Christmas is King Herod. Now, don't get offended yet. There'll be plenty of time to get offended later. In the, in the sermon, let me, let me explain to you why I think we all associate with King Herod. King Herod is totally obsessed with his own kingdom, building his own kingdom, building his own legacy, and, he's, and his, ambition, his ambition is what eventually dooms him, and, and that's where I say there's a little Herod in all of us, is because when our ambition gets too great, we hurt other people. When our ambition gets too great, we miss the Savior, and so that's where I'm going with this today. And, and, you know, especially at this time of year, the enemy, Satan, the enemy of God wants to get you looking anywhere, but at the kingdom of God, he wants you to miss the light. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about King Herod today. Got to fill you in before we get to the scripture. King Herod was very smart. He was very politically astute and he was the greatest builder in the history of Israel. Maybe one of the greatest builders in the history of the world. He was such a good builder that he gave himself the name the great. So he's King Herod. Herod the great comes from Herod himself who looked around and said, man, I'm a great builder. Therefore I must be great. Therefore you must call me great. That's how I think it went down. But anyway, he called himself Herod the great. Now, if you go to Israel, you're going to to see some incredible stuff. Now all of it's been destroyed, but they've excavated a lot of this stuff. First picture, this is Caesarea or what they would call Caesarea. Now this was a swampland. You see right here on, we're on the, on the beach that, that didn't used to exist. Herod said, Hey, I know let's go where there's a swamp and let's build a new city and let's call it Caesarea because I want to kiss up to Caesar. I answer to Caesar. Okay. So he builds Caesarea and did I skip that first thing? No, I didn't. Okay. So he, he builds up Caesarea. Now, it's a swamp, and so, um, he has to build it up, and then he has to get fresh water. We'll show you that in a minute. You see that there's an amphitheater. See the oblong thing over there? That's where they did chariot races, like, um, in the movie Ben Hur. And, and you could actually, they, they uncovered seating for, for like over a hundred thousand people, maybe even 500,000 people could have gotten in here to see all of this. Unbelievable thing. If you see out there the little point sticking out, and you see a little square that has water in it, that used to be a freshwater swimming pool. There used to be a wall up around it. And, and as Janie and I were standing there back, in March, looking at that, we're going, dude, wouldn't that kind of, kind of be weird to be swimming in the swimming pool in Herod's palace here, knowing that right outside this retaining wall is an ocean that could kill you? You know, it's, it's not. Anyway, he was just this unbelievable builder called this one, though, Caesarea, Caesarea, because he wanted to honor Caesar. Next picture. You can see that he built this. This was the seaport of Caesarea. Uh, there wasn't a port there. It became the second largest seaport in the Roman Empire. So they thought this was a pretty cool deal. One more picture. Okay, so how do you get fresh water to a place that used to be a swamp that you've now built up? You build aqueducts, miles and miles. There were actually two aqueducts, and then there was an underground um, tunnel uh, pipe that they would bring fresh water in. He was just this engineering genius. Next picture. So if you're going to build Caesarea, and you have an enormous ego, and you are Herod the Great Builder, why not build a mountain where no mountain exists? This is, this is a mountain that he had the, the workers build up. And he built a palace on top and he called it Herodian as a tribute to himself. Next picture. Okay, so he built five different palaces. This one is on Masada. This is a, ma- a mesa, a mountain with a flat top. And you can't see it, but to the left over here is the Dead Sea. It's in the middle of the wilderness. Again, no fresh water. And so he builds this fortress just because he can. He reroutes water from all of these different places, builds one of the most incredible cisterns in the world where hundreds of thousands of gallons of water would be diverted from all of these these uh, mountains and all of these streams. I mean, not streams, but just empty bed, creek beds. It would wash down and they would have enough water to have three different freshwater baths. They had a hot tub. They had a swimming pool. And he also built two palaces because everybody knows when you're on a place that's that's only a few acres big, you need two palaces, not just one. You can see kind of the one here. This is a palace on this end. You can't see the, the ruins of the palace on the other end because it's about the same size, not not building topwise, but it's about the same size as, as um, Cowboys Stadium. Right, so if you, have a, if you have a footprint as big as Cowboy Stadium, anybody knows it'd be too much trouble to walk from one side to the other if you needed a palace and it was night, you know, so, right? Okay, next picture. Probably Herod's greatest accomplishment, his greatest building accomplishment was building the temple. And uh, and I have to read this to you. I, I can't even describe this. I'm gonna read from from historical notes here about this. Um, probably his greatest accomplishment um, Architectural feat was this this temple. Listen to how they, they describe it. It took ten thousand men ten years just to build the retaining walls that this sits on. Now, where the temple is now it's not there where you see it in this picture, it has been destroyed. It was destroyed in seventy AD. Now the Muslims have the, the Dome of the Rock, their shrine there. Um, the Western wall, which is known as the wailing wall is merely a part of a 500 meter long retaining wall that was designed to hold a huge man-made platform that could accommodate 24 football fields. They didn't know it was football fields. We're just saying that because you can understand 24 football fields would fit on top of this massive structure that he built when it was completed. It was the largest functioning religious site in the world. And today it still is the largest made man-made platform in the world. Now, when it came to building the temple, he did not consult scripture. He, he did what he wanted to do. And, and here's how the Talmud. Now, the Talmud was called Jewish writings. Um, Herod was not a Jew. The Jews did not like him. Um, and, and so when they write something positive about him, you know that it must have been good. Here's what the Talmud says about this temple. It says, he who has not seen Herod's building, the temple, has never in his life seen a truly grand building. Now, listen, Josephus was another Jew. He was a Jewish historian. Here's what he says about the building itself. The Holy of Holies was covered in gold. The walls and columns of the other buildings were white marble. The floors were of Carrara marble, its blue tinge, giving the impression of a moving seawater. The curtains were tapestries of blue, white, scarlet, purple thread depicting the whole vista of the heavens. He's not done yet. He said, Viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes, overlaid all around with stout plates of gold. The first rays of the sun it reflected were so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they had looked straight into the sun itself. To strangers, as they approached, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. He did it right. Now, he had an issue though, um, he needed to pay tribute to Rome, and so he builds this massive golden eagle, uh, not golden, massive eagle statue, which was paying homage to Rome. Well, the traditional Jews said, that is an idol, and so these Jewish seminary students go and they destroy the idol, thinking, ooh, we've defended God. He hunts them down, puts them in chains, they drag them to Jericho where he was, and they burned them alive. Herod did not like... Uh, religious teachers who disagreed with him, so the sanhedrin was seventy members. This was the religious parliament um, and and he killed forty six of the seventy rabbis because he didn 't like them. so he thought, well, you know, I need to have my own high priest, so he appoints his own high priest, and his own high priest becomes so popular that he has him drowned. This dude is not a good dude, and so um he kills all. It. So, so religiously, he's a bad guy. Building, good guy. He calls himself uh, Herod the Great. Politically, let me tell you just a little bit about the politics before we get into um, the, the story here. Now, how many of you have heard of Julius Caesar? Let me see your hands. Julius Caesar. Have you read the story or seen the play? Whatever. Okay. The whole A2 Brute?" You know, "You two Brutus." You're you're turning on me. He gets stabbed in the back. Okay. Julius Caesar has a nephew named Octavian. Octavian is later going to become Caesar Augustus. You ever heard of Caesar Augustus? If you read the Luke two story of Jesus, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. In those days, Caesar Augustus called a census. All right, so he's not there yet. He decides he and Mark Antony, you've heard of Mark Antony. Who did he marry? Cleopatra. So these guys from history, real guys, they decide they're going to avenge the people who killed um, Julius Caesar. So they kill him. They wipe them out, destroy them from the face of the earth. And all of a sudden, these guys get very, very powerful. Each of them have different allegiances from different powerful people. And it doesn't take a very smart person to realize these guys are going to come to conflict. There's one throne. There's two dudes. There's two huge egos. There's one throne. There's going to be a fight. Herod King Herod the one who calls himself the great chooses Mark Antony he likes Mark Antony they've got this good relationship he likes Cleopatra the Romans hated Cleopatra because they thought her allegiance was always to to Egypt so he has all of these parties he sends them lavish gifts and eventually the war happens between Mark Antony and Octavian and Herod chose Mark Antony and he bet on the wrong horse because Octavian wins. And Octavian then becomes Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. And what do you think Herod said? Uh-oh. Herod realizes he's got three options. One, he could, he could kill himself and save the emperor travel because you knew the emperor was coming. Because he chose the wrong side. He could run and hope the emperor never found him. Or he could make the best of a bad situation. Which one do you think he chose? He chose option three. This is is one of the funniest things to me. So um, Herod decides to hop on a boat. He goes to the island of Rhodes where Caesar Augustus, the new emperor, is. He knocks on the door and he says, is Caesar home? And the people are inside going, who's at the door? King Herod, the one who chose the wrong side? Does he not know he's on the emperor's most wanted list? We're going to hunt him down and kill him, but he's coming to us. Bonus! So they let let King Herod in. He gets an audience with Caesar and he makes his most brilliant political speech in his life. Walks in front of Caesar and this whole audience and he says, yes, I chose the wrong side, but that's my greatest gift is my loyalty. I was loyal to Mark Antony until the end. And oh, great Caesar, I now pledge that kind of loyalty to you. And Caesar bought it. Not only did he not take Judea away from King Herod, he expanded his territory. He gave him Gaza, he gave him Samaria, um, and, and Jericho. So I would say that's making the best of a bad situation, right? Herod was so consumed with his own power that he made a lot of bad decisions. One guy said he changed his, his will four times. Another guy, Red, said he changed his will six times. Why? Well, he had ten wives. He kept killing his wives because he suspected they were trying to steal his throne. Um, he had a whole bunch of sons, but he couldn't decide which son should be the the king after him. And so he kills the ones who doesn't, who don't work out. And so you need to change. If you keep killing all of your relatives, you have to change your will. It gets to the point that his sons are like, dad, don't pick me. I don't even want to run the kingdom. No joke. Quote direct quote from Caesar Augustus, the first emperor. He says, it's better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. This was not a good guy. Now you have to understand Herod's focus. And we're almost getting into the story. You understand Herod's focus is his legacy. Everything he does is about building and protecting his legacy. When we come across Herod in the Bible, he's about 70 years old. He has a painful disease. And and I've read all of this stuff. And doctors have tried to figure this out from, from the description. Here's the description. Uh, they said he probably died of cr- uh, chronic kidney disease complicated by a nasty case of gangrene. Josephus, again, the Jew, the Jewish historian, said, Herod had a fever, though not a raging fever, an intolerable itching of the whole skin, continuous pains in the intestines, tumors of the feet as in dropsy, inflammation of the abdomen, and gangrene of the privy parts. I'm not making this stuff up. All right? right? I'm not making it up. Josephus tells us that Herod also suffered from asthma, limb convulsions, and foul breath. I don't know that, why that was funny, but I laughed out loud when I, when I found out that Herod the Great had foul breath. And yet, you know it had to be bad if a Jewish... Anyway, so Herod is really sick. He knows it. He knows he's about to die. He's in unbelievable pain. And then he gets the absolute worst news that he could get. In a city not five miles away, Janie and I have been in Jerusalem, we've been in Bethlehem. In a city five miles south of Jerusalem, a new king is born. Not a king who's trying to make everybody else worship him. Not a king that, that answers to Rome, but a king who has been predicted for hundred of, hundreds of years before his birth. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east come to Jerusalem and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, now how do you think that went over with Herod who's trying to defend his, his own legacy? Not well. The sons who are still alive, they're diving under the bed. It wasn't me, dad, it wasn't me. The guards that hear about, you know, they're taking their lunch break. <laughs> Shut them up. Somebody's about to die. You don't ask King Herod where the new king has been born. They said, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Herod is desperate for someone other than Herod to worship Herod. And he hears about this, this baby who's done absolutely nothing. That men from another country come thousands of miles to worship him. Scripture says in verse three, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now we understand why Herod was disturbed because he's all about legacy. Why was everybody else disturbed? Because when Herod's disturbed, somebody gets hurt. He was always off. Actually, he was a lot off mentally. I started to say a little off mentally. He was cray cray, but now he's old and sick and in pain and cray 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 on steroids. Everyone was ducking because they didn't want to get hit by something. Verse four, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. All right, I just told you, he killed how many 46 of 70 rabbis, teachers. So all of a sudden, Herod goes, hey, everybody who's ever taught a Bible study, come to my house. Do you want to show up? No. When he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, He asked them, where is the Messiah? Where the Messiah was to be born. They were in Bethlehem of Judea. They replied, all the religious folks are like, duh. They didn't say it because you would die, but they were thinking every good Jew knows it's Bethlehem. Oh, but wait, you're not even a real Jew. They say in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied for this is what the prophet has written. But you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go and do what? Do you think he wanted to worship? Is that really what he wanted? After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming into the house. This is a big deal. They didn't come to the manger. The wise men didn't. They came into a house, and and you find out later it's about two years from the time they first saw the star, so he could have been up to two years old. They come into the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and did what? Worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This word worship meant something very, very different back then than it means today. It did not mean singing. Worship in that time meant you recognize that you're in the presence of one greater than you are. And you do whatever you need to do physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, to demonstrate to the one who is greater than you that you know they are greater than you. Right? It had nothing to do with, with singing. These wealthy men traveled thousands of miles, come and they bow down and they give gifts to this one who's done nothing but simply because of who he is. They say, we want to worship you. Five miles away, the guy who desperately wants to be worshipped. He's greatly disturbed. Anyone heard from those wise guys? You let me know as soon as those wise guys show up. Because Herod's focus was his legacy, his struggle, his whole life, his struggle had been to preserve, protect, and control his kingdom. So what do you think he's going to do? You think he's going to bow down to a toddler? No. This is why I say there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. You see, before Christ, our whole life is preserve, protect, control our lives, our kingdom. The crazy thing to me is when we're Christ followers, after we come to Christ, we still try to preserve, protect, and control our own kingdom. We still try to make deals with God instead of worship him. Oh, yeah, God, I'll, I'll come to church um, as long as you do something for me. Um, I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. I might even give some money as long as I know you're going to pay me back. I, God, if you'll just help me build my kingdom, then sure, I'll throw a little worship your way. But Surrender? You must be crazy if you think I'm going to bow down and give up control to someone else. My whole life has been about preserve, protect, and control. You want me to say yes before I even know what the question is? Yes. That's worship. That's why I can can say I don't think worship happens very often in American churches. Because we think it's about the singing. We think it's about us. Worship was never designed for you. It's designed for God. See, worship is, I'm going to do whatever I can, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, to demonstrate that I worship the one true God. It has nothing to do with me. See, people say, oh man, worship was good today. And I want to say, according to whom? You? No offense. Worship according to God is very different than worship according to us. God says, you want want to worship me? Then you recognize I'm greater. You get down on your knees. You give whatever you need to give. You demonstrate that you worship me. And then God will say, worship was good today. We've got too many of us worshiping ourselves and not the risen Savior. True worship changes our focus from our kingdom, my life, to his. It's all about him. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. God God doesn't come and make suggestions. He comes and tells you what to do. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. What happens when Herod is furious? People die. His whole life had been about controlling the outcome. Even when he chose the wrong army, he was able to control the outcome and expand his kingdom. He thought when he talked to the Magi, he had outsmarted destiny. He thought that that he had preserved his kingdom. And when he found out he was wrong, he goes about preserving his kingdom in the most brutal way possible. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is a terrorist mindset. A terrorist says it's your own fault. If you'd brought me the one, I wouldn't have to kill the many. But because you didn't bring me one, I'll kill them all. And I don't know why I didn't tell this service a a few weeks ago. Um, This this really hit me this week because... um, my grandson was born on Wednesday. Six pounds, five ounces. And I thought, what kind of monster murders a bunch of innocent baby boys simply because he thinks they're a threat to his kingdom? I, I finished typing most of this before I went to, to meet my grandson. And, and as I'm holding him, I thought I would do anything. Anything to protect this boy. And that means that had I been there, had you been there and you tried to protect your child, your your son under two years of age, you would have been killed too. That's the kind of man Herod was. Now, shortly after all of this, Herod dies a painful death. It was so painful that he actually tried to commit suicide. But as he's killing himself, his cousin walks in and saves him. So he continues to suffer. I'm sorry. That's just poetic justice to me. Just before he died, Herod commanded that all the wealthy, influential Jewish men in Jerusalem be gathered up, put in prison. And then he commands this, when I die, execute all of the wealthy, influential Jewish men. Why? He said, so that there will be mourning when I die. Herod knew there was going to be a party When he died, I don't know if you saw this when Fidel Castro passed away and and people in Miami, the, the, the Cuban immigrants flooded the streets, had a parade, shooting off fireworks, they're dancing, ding dong, the king is dead, the wicked king is dead. It doesn't sound as good as Wicked Witch, but you know, you get my point if you've ever watched the old Wizard of Oz. When he died, they released all of those men because you don't have to answer to or obey the instructions of a dead king. Herod died, they they released all the men. And see, this is how Jesus is different than every other earthly king. Yeah, he died, but he came back to life. Never to die again, and he expects obedience. Let me give you just a a couple of lessons from Herod. First of all, uncontrolled, uncontrolled ambition turns you into a monster. When you feel like your kingdom has been attacked, you attack someone else's kingdom so that you feel better about your kingdom. Second thing, jealousy makes you paranoid. You start looking for evidence that someone's trying to mess up your kingdom. And when you're looking for evidence, it's called confirmation bias. You find it. See, did you see? They're whispering over there. They're talking about me. They gave me a dirty look. They're mad at me. Makes you paranoid. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. (laughs) Not a suggestion take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. The irony of all ironies in this story is the man who called himself Herod the Great, Ends up a footnote in the story of Jesus. You wouldn't even know his name. You wouldn't know Herod's name if not for Jesus. That brings me to the third point there. Those who dishonor God, you try to dishonor God to get your kingdom built, you'll always end up a footnote. Can you just imagine being an advisor to Herod when he's on his deathbed? Hey, Herod, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Good news, Herod? Thousands of years from now. People will still be reading your name. That's awesome. That's what he wanted. What's the bad news? (laughs) You're a footnote. In the story of the baby who grew up to be king and savior of the world. And by the way, Herod, you're not known as Herod the Builder. You're known as this evil, paranoid, petulant Herod the Butcher. Have a nice afterlife. Herod was just five miles from the birth of the king. And he missed it. Because everybody who's obsessed with building their own kingdom misses Jesus. They miss the light of the world every Christmas. 80 years after this, after all this stuff I just told you, 80 years later, John, we talked about him last week. John, who was with Jesus from the beginning, who saw Jesus do miracles, who saw Jesus crucified, raised from the dead, who stood and watched Jesus ascend to heaven in the clouds. He'd seen all of this stuff about Herod. He had lived through all of this darkness 80 years after all of this, the birth of Jesus and the drama we just talked about, here's what he said about Jesus. In him was life, past tense. And that life was the light of all mankind, past tense. Not a Jewish king, but a king for all the world. He's the light of the world. Now, he shifts to present tense. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. This word is for you today in, in 2016. He shifts to present tense. The light, Jesus, shines in the darkness. John knows a thing or two about darkness. Darkness. And everybody in this room knows a thing or two about darkness. You know, I told you a long time ago, we we were talking about the principle of the path. That that Jesus, when he created the world, it was perfect. There was no sin. There was no brokenness. There was no death. There was no sickness. There was no hurting each other. But then sin entered the world. And we live in this meantime. (laughs) Kind of funny name. Meantime. So in the beginning, it was perfect. In the meantime, it's not perfect. Jesus said, I'm coming back and I'm going to make it perfect again. But we live in the meantime when there is sin, when there is darkness. And here's what John said. The light shines in that darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Not then, not now, not ever. And so what I want to challenge you today is I want to ask you, how are you going to respond to that light? There's only two options. Are you going to resist it? Are you going to worship it? Because, see, when you pray, there's really only two options. My will be done or thy will be done. My kingdom come or thy kingdom come. Those are the only two options. And and whether you believe it or not, there's going to come a time when you pass from this life and somebody's going to stand up at your funeral. And my question is, are they going to have to make stuff up about you? Or will they say, not only did they respond to and worship the light, they let that light shine through them in such a way that other people are in the kingdom of God. That's my desire for every one of you is to worship the light and let the light shine through you. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, this world is dark. Every one of us has suffered. And I thank you that there was an event that happened 2,000 years ago, the birth of Christ, but it wasn't just about the birth. He died on the cross. It's not about the death. It's about He raised back to life victorious over sin in the grave so that, so that everyone who calls on the name of, the, of Jesus may be saved. Everyone who worships the light may be saved. We're saved in this life, but we're saved for all eternity. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know, who's never responded to the light, I pray today would be that day. Make us a light shining on this little hill outside of Palestine so that people within driving distance can come into your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.